Let's pray together with 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Lord, in the minutes that we have together, we ask you to bless us with your word. It is your word that changes lives. It is your spirit that communes with our spirit and lets us know who Christ is. So Lord, I pray that Christ would be glorified, edif- uh, uh, lifted up in this place, and your people would be edified through our communion and fellowship with him. Lord, by your spirit, please make Jesus real to us and help us understand your word better so we can apply it to our lives and walk with you closer. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We have a short amount of time, so i got to jump right into it. 2 Corinthians 11. In weakness, God is strong. In weakness, God is strong. If, you don't, if you're not a Christian today, if you're not a believer, if you're, maybe somebody will watch it later, uh, that might be sounding a little different, isn't it? Because we don't understand how this could happen. It's, it's sort of a strange, sort of surprising. What do you mean weakness? God is strong? What weakness? I don't need to be weak. I need to be strong, we're told in the world. You need to unleash that tiger in you, that sleeping giant that awakens within you, your personality, and all these things. I took all these business classes, by the way, so it really wasn't that impressive because I knew what they're telling me was not true. I'm like, no, I'm not that person. <laughs> I really am not. But, you know, you psychologically motivate you, and that's what the world does to try to make you strong. God has another plan, and it's quite interesting because Paul has been talking to this church. It's called the Corinthian church. And the Corinthians lived near the area, near the Aegean Sea and the Ionian Sea. This is close to Athens. And this letter was written to a church, was written to Christians, in which Paul had preached the gospel to them. He had brought them to Christ. He was an amazing, amazing pastor, preacher, apostle, evangelist. The apostle Paul loved them, and they grew into a great relationship with them. But he warned them about dangers, just like any parent would, just like any someone that loves would. That there were dangers, that there were false apostles coming into the church in Corinth, and they were. And those apostles had driven a wedge between them and Paul. Paul was now, as it were, excluded from the Corinthian church. They didn't want him to come. That's pretty sad, isn't it? When you build a relationship as a a Christian, especially a pastor or a leader, and now the church itself doesn't want anything to do with you. You lead somebody to Christ, and now that person doesn't want anything to do with you because others have come on the scene. Jesus called them wolves in sheep's clothing. And Paul speaks of his jealousy. Paul is jealous. And this is a good jealousy, by the way. A jealousy because he knows that there's no other way but Christ. And if these false apostles are leading him away from Christ, there's not going to be a good ending for them. And he speaks of his concerns. And today, just the last 15 verses today of chapter 11, we talked about that last week. It was about the false teachers and how Paul was concerned that even Satan could deceive them. And he he talks about the devil. I hope that doesn't frighten you today. Paul talked about the devil, and he talked about the devil could influence even believers. It's a crazy thing, isn't it? Oh, I rebuked that. No, we're not talking about that part. We're talking about the reality that Satan can deceive someone who takes their eyes off of Christ, who takes their eyes off the gospel, who takes their eyes off of Jesus and his word. And Paul had a legitimate concern because Paul sees himself as a, uh, the friend of the bridegroom. Remember we talked about that? The friend of the bridegroom who was in charge of bringing the bride and the husband together. And he was kind of like the guy who made the deal happen. That was in the first century. Sort of arranged marriage. But he was in the friend of the bridegroom was the one who was now in charge of keeping her pure, keeping the bride pure until her wedding day. 
to her wedding night with her husband. And of course, the bride is the church. Christ is the, uh, it's the bridegroom. And Paul sees himself as the friend of the bridegroom. Kind of like John the Baptist said the same thing. And he wants the church to be ready for Jesus. He wants the church to be holy and sanctified without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And he wants her to be ready. But the church of Corinth, they weren't getting ready. They actually, were actually going away from Christ. They were going away from the simplicity of Christ, the devotion to Christ. And simplicity doesn't mean it's, it's like simple and easy. The simplicity, the word means a oneness, a dedication that is only one out of one. You are committed to Christ because he's the only one on that list. Not one out of ten, not one out of five, not even one out of two. He's one out of one. And he is, that's the simplicity. It's a single-mindedness to worship Christ. That's what we need, and that's what Paul wanted for them. And so Paul had some fears. We read that in the first four verses of chapter 11, that just like Satan had deceived Eve, so can Satan deceive them again. Think about that. Satan deceived Adam and Eve, the first, uh, the first humans on the earth. He deceived the angels. Think about that too. Who had seen the light and the glory of God. He deceived Adam and Eve who had never sinned. He had deceived the angels who had seen the glory of God. Uh, what chances do we have, you know, who have sinned and who have never seen the glory of God in that way as the angels did? And he was able to do it. That's how crafty and conniving he is. I give no credit to the devil, but this, this is true. He knows his business. He knows how to get to us. And, of course, he's got a horde of demons that knows exactly how to get to you and to me. That's what Paul talks about, his strategies. He's literally his tactics. How does he get to, you know, how does he get Rick to fall, you know? Not picking a rake or anything like that. Sorry, brother, just an example. Or Alberto to fall, or Daniel. How do we get them? Well, they have weaknesses. They have frailties and faults, and we're going to exploit them. That's how the devil works. And we're going to distract them, and we're going to give them something else to think about and do other than Christ. And a man can be led astray that way. Very simple. But that's the background of it. So how do we deal with this wonderful, wonderful thing? It's, it's this thing. Here we go. We're going to talk about the previous, previous message, how it connects to the previous time we talked about this, the passage itself, and then what do we learn? So very simple today. Three points. Not giving myself any particular time, but only three points. So very, very simple points. Um, but it might take some time. Uh, Paul is concerned. Paul is concerned. And he knows the believers need, need something. And that's the message of the cross. The message of the cross. And the message of the cross here has to do with this, not what comes out of their lips, but what their lives bring about. Meaning, the cross is not just about preaching it, but it's about living it. The cross is not just about saying the right words, but living the right message. And this is what Paul is going to bring home today. Uh, a very difficult passage to read because people are going to, you might say, well, why is this talking about his suffering? Paul is going to talk about how he suffered for the Lord. And encourage us in the process. But the cross of Calvary, in the cross of Calvary, what you see there, it's ultimate weakness. Ultimate weakness. Think about this. On that cross, Jesus was laid on that cross. His nails were driven through his wrist. Then his ankles were folded together and a spike went through those ankles. As he was lifted up on that cross, what you saw was terrible. He was treated horribly. Six trials that night scourged, a crown of thorns, unbelievably beaten, blindfolded, spat upon. Anything you can think of, they did. They plucked at his beard, says the prophet. 
mangled, demolished a body on that cross, and yet God was bringing salvation to you. The power of God, the power of God was being brought forth for salvation to anyone who would believe in him, that, I don't know how to call it, without being disrespectful, I don't want to sound disrespectful, but that beaten man, wounded, that you can hardly even recognize him because of his beaten. That's where forgiveness lies. That's where the power of God to forgive your sins, it's where it's found. And anybody who would believe in him and what he accomplished there on that cross would have eternal life. That's the power of God. But how is it demonstrated? In a beaten, demolished, mistreated, horrible, horrible body beaten and unrecognizable. That's how it's demonstrated. And so you would say, how, would, how is my eternal life guaranteed by something so weak, something so mistreated? And yet it's the greatest thing God has done. The greatest thing God has done is in weakness and in disgrace. Think about that. Your salvation, my salvation, when the Messiah hung on a cross for our sins, it is the epitome of weakness and disgrace. And yet it is the power of God. So we have to think about that first. False teachers in, in, in the apostles' days, and even to this day, do not speak of weakness and frailty in that way. They speak of this. They speak of power. You need power, brother. You need power. And it's a big thing, even to this day. And it's a big thing for false teachers to do it. Why? Because they boast. They boast on a lot of things. They boast on self. They boast on their power. They boast on miracles. They boast on they could do all of God's work. And it's about power. They look at Paul the Apostle and they said, how can Paul be of God? He is so weak. Remember they said that about Paul? His speech is terrible. He looks like a weak man. And I, I gave you the description of what's in church history about Paul. He was a short man, bald, unibrow, um, weak-looking, sickly-looking, bow-legged, a speech impediment, and he couldn't see really well. And you're telling me, as he walked into this church, you would say that is one of the greatest examples of faith in the entire world. You would say, this man needs a hospital. He can't preach to me. This man needs help. Anybody come, ushers, come on up. Who are you? I'm Paul the Apostle. No, you're not. We've heard about Paul the Apostle. His great preaching and message and that. You can't be Paul the Apostle. Well, yes, I am Paul the Apostle. Well, you look like a mess, and you can't, we can't have you up here. You don't look good in camera. The apostles, the false apostles were into boasting. You need to look good. You need to sound good. You need to be powerful. You need to make sure people know you're the power of God, and they yearn for that power. And by the way, you can find books like that. Your best life now. You can overcome everything. Your books on power and resources. By the way, even the world knows that. Remember to give you a little bit of a hint of that? Unleash the giant within you. you. The sleeping dragon that lies within you. Your personality. Bring it forth out and shout it out. You are whatever. Now, now you got pastors saying, I am claiming to be God. It's blasphemous. But that happens. False teachers bring both of a lot of things. By the way, this is the influence of the gospel in our society because we, we know as Americans, even as a non-believer, could say, you know, boasting is probably not that good. And it's not. Boasting and pride comes before the fall. Well, that's the influence of the gospel, by the way. But in the first century, gospel, in the first century, 
uh, boasting was looked upon as something good. Why? Uh, humility was looked upon as something weak, and boasting was something strong. In the first century, if you, because the Greeks thought that once you die, you went into a disembodied spirit in which you would never be able to display your physical power anymore, then you need to do it here. You need to do it in this life, because once you die and you become a disembodied spirit, there's no chance of being proud and strong of your physical body. So you need to do it now. And so the Greeks brought that into our society, that the greatest thing you could do is boast about yourself, boast about your things, boast about what you've done. And by the way, you can go to Rome, even to this day, go to the excavations and you find murals and paintings and, and, and discourses that the Romans did. And guess what? Generals, Caesars, even parents, uh, they have discourses of what the parents would tell the kids. And all, it was all about their accolades, all of what they've done as a man or as a woman, as a military leader. It's all in their public houses and in their public bath, all the things that they did. It's like, Man, they did a lot of stuff. They loved to boast about it, right? Whether they were people, fathers, military leaders, whatever they may be. And by the way, the Pharisees were the same. And the, in the Jewish community, they were the same thing. Remember Jesus talked about the story, the parable. They went into the temple, a man, two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee boasted about his, his spirituality. I'm not like other men. I'm not like other men. I give, I do this, I do that, I do the other. I'm not like this guy here. And the Bible says the tax collector was so moved and, and touched by God in a sense of his humility, he beat his chest and says, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And the Bible says Jesus said that man went home justified. The other man did not. The proud man did not. And so even in the, in the teaching of Jesus, you have this idea that pride and boasting, even about what God does through you, can, be, can get to your head, can become, a, can become an idol. And the false teachers were claiming Paul had no power. And so Paul is going to address this. So let's look at verse 16. All that to say, let's get into it now. Verse 16. Paul is going to take on the challenge, as it were. And so I want you to understand why he's writing this. He's writing to answer their boasting. You want to boast? I'll get in the same arena with you. You want to boast about what you do? I will get into it. But Paul does it in such a unique way, it will leave us, and I think, in the first century, it would have been much more powerfully felt because everything was about boasting. Paul's going to boast about things that he suffered. How do you boast on your own weaknesses? Well, this is the Bible for you, right? He's going to explain something. Verse 16, again, I, am, I, I, again, I say, let no one think of me as a fool, but if you do, receive me as one foolish so that I also may boast a little bit. You think I'm a fool? Because that's what they thought of him. You know, the, the false teachers were this great man of God at power. They thought Paul was a fool. He says, you think I'm a fool? Well, let me foolishly boast. L let, let me, I will admit that I'm a fool. And let's talk about foolishness. But let's talk about boasting. Verse 17. What I'm saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would, but in, as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also, I'm going to boast, but as in foolishness, as in, of course, his boasting was different. He's going to boast, uh, not the way you would thought that he would boast, because most of us would have thought, well, Paul's going to talk about all the great things the Lord had done in his life. How even when he went to Cyprus, the Lord used him to do miracles. And even a, a, a seeing man was turned blind because of the power of God through Paul. 
and how people were healed, even by Paul and his ministry, right? He's going to talk about his great, great work of God in his life. And he says, I'm going to boast, not as anybody think I'm going to boast, but I'm going to boast according to the flesh. I will boast also. So people are going to boast, entertain me a little bit. And can you notice a little bit of uh, the irony and sarcasm of Paul? Yeah, you're right. You are noticing something that he's using. He's using a very powerful weapon called sarcasm to get their attention. You like wise men, right? And you think I'm a fool. Well, entertain me is what Paul says. I'll be a fool for you for a couple of minutes. You like people that are boastful? I'm going to boast. I'm going to boast in front of you. Verse 19. For you, being so wise, you tolerate the foolish gladly. Okay, you, you, you're so wise, he says. You're so wise. You can put up with a fool for a few minutes, could you? Notice how he is developing this idea so they can come to the, the real meat of the text. Verse 20. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. We can boast in your presence. You can put up with me because guess what? You have put up with other people. You put up with people who enslaved you, who taught you falsely, who gave you, you know, did a lot of things in your, in your life, took advantage of you, exalted themselves. You put up with them. Now, put up with my little boasting, just for a little while. Right? Verse 21. To my shame, I must say, I must say, we have been weak by comparison. We're also weak. But, you know, we want to boast in your presence, but we're weak. I admit that. That's we as in his own uh, disciples that came to him. And so Paul is going to admit that they have been bold in bragging about this very thing. I'm going to be bold about something that God has done in my life. You want to boast? It's like Paul rolls up his leaves. Yeah. He's like, I will boast with you. You want kind of boasting you want to do? I'm going to boast in the Lord. And Paul rolls up his sleeves and it says, um, verse 22, are they Hebrews? Yes, I am. Notice that the most likely false teachers that came into the church in Corinth were probably Judaizers that had come into the church in wanting to put the Corinthians back under the law. So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. This is, must have been incredible. The only area in which he agreed with the false teachers was that they are Jews. And so he was. So if they were going to boast about being Jews, you know, because uh, maybe they thought of themselves as being closer to Jesus since Jesus was a Jew, and they were Jews as well, Paul says, well, you also forgot that I'm a Jew too. I can speak of my Judaism if I wanted to. Verse 23, are they servants of the Messiah, Christ? I speak as if I was insane. I more so, and far more labors, and far more imprisonments, and beatings without numbers, often in danger and in death. And this is what Paul gets into it here. How can somebody say he's a better servant of Christ than another person? Did you notice that part there where it says, I am more so? Are they servants of Christ? I am more. How can somebody be more of a better servant for Christ? You know how? How much you're willing to suffer for the Lord. Somebody's willing to suffer for the Lord and has suffered for the Lord becomes a better servant of Christ because his loyalty is that much deeper. See, we could all say, we could all say today, I'm a follower of Jesus. But if today was illegal to come and there were repercussions of coming to a church today, 
the servants of Christ would show up despite the situations, you know, whatever the cost it would be. Those who are not full on will say, it's too risky. Better not. And see, Paul was different. How can he say that? How can he say he was a better servant of Christ? It's when you suffered more than anybody else. And here's Paul going to give you the, serv- the proof of his servantship. You want to know somebody serious for the Lord? Look how much they're willing to suffer for the Lord. Look how much they're willing to put up with things that come against them. I'm not saying it's going to be rods and rocks all the time. But how much hatred do you think will come against true servants of Christ in our society? How much criticism? How much would you have to pay as a servant of Christ maybe in your job? Would you lose your job because of that? Would you be excluded from society? Would you be put aside even by your own family because of your commitment to Christ? That's what Paul is talking about here. It may not be the beatings that he got, but there are believers who have done that, by the way. It's not just Paul, but even today in the persecuted church, this happens. The proof of his apostleship is not how great of a preacher he was. He had the scars to prove it. He had the scars to prove it. Now you know someone's loyal. Now you know someone's loyal. Verse 24. And here's a catalog. Here's a catalog of Paul's loyalty for Christ. And, by the way, for the Corinthians as well. You want to see his uh, proof of apostleship? You want to know Paul is a real servant of Christ? You know, he could have showed you his credentials, right? He could have said, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a born Benjamite. He did that in Philippians, by the way. What did he say about that? He says, all those things, I count it loss. I count it nothing. Rubbish. Rubbish. It's a word, kubula. It's a crude word. That means, they mean absolutely nothing. It's something you flush down a toilet. That's what it means. It's something, it's a crude word in Greek, by the way, skubula. It means what you put on a toilet. That's what Paul thought about all the things he had accomplished on his own without Christ. It meant nothing to him. What did he accomplish in Christ? Well, he did a lot, but he doesn't bring them up. Verse 24, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned three times. I was shipwrecked at night and day. I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, uh, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers from among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardships through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst often without food and cold and exposure. All these things he suffered. What a catalog. Now, what are these 39 lashes? Well, in my lifetime, Paul says, I receive 40 lashes minus one. That's what he's saying. 40 lashes minus one. 39 lashes. So the Jews would whip a person 39 times. And what did they do 39 times? They would actually do 40, but because they wanted to show mercy, they would deduct one. And the reason why they did it, sounds, sounds funny, right? Like, thanks. I needed that. But the reason why it's because the, the executor, the one who was punishing, would be guilty if he punished more than what was needed. So somebody had to stand there with the guy and Paul being whipped, and somebody had to count. And so they didn't miscount. They always deduct one. Just in case somebody missed one, they would always deduct one. And it was a large leather stripped, right? A large leather whipped with strips. 
And they would, by law, they had to, when they hit them, they had to hit both sides of the body. As your, your back was stripped and you hunched over and had to hit both sides of your body. That's how you were supposed to be whipped 39 times. And that happened to him, not just one, five times. And by the way, if the, wit, uh, the witness had to be there, another reason is because if the, if the prisoner died, then they had to have a witness to say that the guy who whipped them didn't kill him on purpose. Because many people died from those beatings, just from one beating. It happened to Paul five times. Five times. Verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Now, this is from the Gentiles. We all seen the sign of the Roman sign. The Roman sign, this is the emblem of the Roman Empire. It's the axe with the rods. What is that? Well, this is the sign of the Imperial Rome. The axe was for execution. Don't you dare cross Rome. And the rods were for beatings, the beatings. And Paul got them. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was left for dead. He was stoned. Most likely talking about his time in the book of Acts near the city of Iconium. He floated at night all day. He said, that's my boasting. That's what I've done. The, the false teachers were boasting of their miracles and of their power and of their friends and personality and how they got along so great. Here's Paul boasting about his jail time, his beatings, his hard work. Look what it says in verse 25. I was shipwrecked night and day I spent in the deep in journeys and dangers and highways. The Gentiles attacked me. The Jews attacked me. The false brethren attacked me. Sometimes I was so weary of working so hard that I ran out of resources, literally. I didn't have any resources. Verse 27, I sleepless nights and hunger and thirst. I didn't have any food. I didn't have anything to drink. I didn't have any food. I didn't have any clothing without food, cold, and exposure. I didn't have enough clothing. Dangers in the sea. Dangers in the land. Nothing to eat, nothing to wear. This is what the early church called, it was an honor. It was an honor to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now, Paul is not trying to be a hero here, and he's going to bring it down to earth in a, in a few minutes. He's not trying to be a hero or some kind of martyr and say, oh, look how much I've suffered for the Lord. He's boasting on something that is very important for us, and he's going to finish that in chapter 12. So next time, we'll finish chapter 12 too, is that he was weak. He was not a man that you could look at him and says, man, that's the power of God. He was a man that you looked at him and says, man, you need medical attention. You need help very, very fast. And Paul says, but that's my boasting. Don't take that away. In our minds, in our rational minds, trying to figure out how does this work as a Christian? How is weakness actually strong or, or strength? How is weakness represented by strength? Verse 28, above all, Paul says, apart from these external things that has happened to me, there's a daily pressure on me concerning the churches. I have been in labor and I have been in hardships, but you know what moves me? When Christians are dealing with things. I can sympathize. Look at verse 29. Who is weak without, without my being weak? who is led into sin without my intense concern. I have such a concern for the church, Paul says. I'm worried sick about them. I'm so worried about their spiritual progress. And this is Paul being 
the loving father, spiritual father, relationship with them as a pastor. He says, I'm so concerned for the welfare of the church. If there's a new, if there's a believer in the church who's being led astray, I am sick and concerned for him. I'm so concerned that they're not going to progress. They're not going to have progress in their lives. And I can sympathize for those who are weak because there's no one weaker than me. Verse 29. If you think you're weak, guess what, Paul? outdoes the weakness. He is weaker than all of us. And it's said, if some Christian is made to stumble, he says, I have intense concern. I have intense fury when Christians are led astray. Paul, you just talked about you died multiple times, and yet your concern is for other people? Yeah. See, this is where the strength of God comes in. Verse 30. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. If I have to boast... I'm going to do it on what I've suffered for the Lord. See, the other guys will talk about their achievements and success. It says, I talk about the sleepless nights I had. I talk about the rivers I had to cross. I talk about how I nearly died. That's my boasting. How about that? Yes. They boast about their success. I boast about my calamities. Yes. You, want to, you want to compare? You want to compare how blessed you are? I've been blessed. But I've been beaten, Paul says. I had setbacks, imprisonments, all kinds of stuff. Verse 31. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who's blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Just in case you wanted to say, Paul, are you using hyperbole here? Are you trying to just make yourself feel better and make other people feel sad for you? No, you know what? Who, who knows all this? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed forever. Yes. Paul is not lying. I'm bringing you the truth. Now let's talk about testimony. It's testimony time. Verse 31. In Damascus, sorry, verse 32. In Damascus, at Ethnar, the Ethnar under Eratos, the king was, the guard, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window on a wall. There you go. And so I escaped his hands. Testimony time. Can you imagine? All right, come up. Testimony. False teachers come up. He says, God, use me in a miraculous way. I healed everybody. Oh. I was, I was in trouble, and God delivered me through an angel. Oh. And I had the power of God, and I was snatched away. Paul, come up. Talk about your great testimony that God has done in your life. You can imagine all these teachers, right? And Paul goes, remember Damascus? Remember that, that, that wicked king, Eratos? Oh, yeah, he was an awful man. I was there, and, and the city was guarded by all these people. They wanted to kill me. What happened, Paul? That God sent an angel, and he slew them all? Did God snatch you away like Philip? No. They had to make a way for me out of the city. I was a basket case. They put me in a basket, and they put me down the wall, and through the wall on a window, I went down, and I ran for my life. Doesn't sound like the power of God, does it? What's going on, Paul? He's making a point. Where there's weakness, God is at work. Where there's weakness, God is at work. He's not a great success story. He doesn't have a great personality. You know what he is? He is a slave of Christ. He is a servant of Christ. Paul's going to tell us more in chapter 12 
about the suffering. But he's showing us here his enduring strength. Look, it hasn't changed him. All the suffering that happened in his life, Paul didn't go, you know what, I packed it in. This is crazy. I didn't sign up for this. When Jesus said, go to Damascus, I didn't think it was going to be like this. No, he says, I kept going. Why? Is it because he has so much strength? No, in fact, he's told us he doesn't have any. I have to go through it, not in my strength, in Christ's strength, in the strength of God. I am a poor little basket case, is what he's saying. And if I could endure this, only because Christ was in me. That's it. See, the real test of a man is not the power. The real test of a man is not even how much control a person has over a ministry or over a church or over a flock or over, you know, being a tyrant over a ministry. That's not the power of God. That's not the real test of a man. But the divine tribulation that happens to that person and how he deals with the suffering, that's how you know someone is from Christ. Are they able to stand in tribulation? Are they able to deal with the setbacks in their lives? I said, Pastor, well, this never happened to me. It doesn't have to happen to you. This was Paul's burden to carry. And Jesus made it, made it possible for him to carry. But he also made it possible for you to carry that burden. What did Christ have done in your life? Well, many wonderful things, hasn't he? But has he also brought difficulties and tribulations and hardships? How well did you deal with that? In the book of Proverbs, we're told when tribulation comes and you fail, it shows you that you're not, your, your strength is weak. You don't have enough strength. If you fall in the day of calamity, your strength is weak. Yes. You know how strong you are when difficult things come. How do you stand? It says in Timothy, you know, a real pastor, a real leader, a real church minister, leader, elder, deacon. You know, the real test is how do they handle the test? Had they been tested? The test is the difficulties in their life. And by the way, if you're a Christian, you all have tests. Yes. You Amen. all have tests. I'm not from the South, but you all have tests. You all have tests. And you're all going to have to stand in that test. It may not be a beaten, but it might beaten down your walls of faith. It might be going, are we going to make it? And see, that's the real test, is how you deal with the suffering. You ever had a rough marriage? How did you deal with it? Hey, no testimony time, okay? Not yet, all right? Not yet. But have you stood in your difficult marriage and didn't leave? And looked at that thing and looked at the options and looked at the temptation and says, you know what? No, I love Christ. And I love this woman or I love this man despite them. I love them despite all who they are. God knows my wife's put up with me. <laughs> my wife's put up with a lot of me. And yet, by God's grace, the strength there, their strength there. Why? Not my strength. If it was up to me and you, probably would have buckled under that pressure. So what did we learn? I told you to try to make it short today. What did we learn? By the way, if you wanted a, a list, here they are. Shipwrecked, open sea, beaten with rods. I looked at that this morning and I was like, my faith was like, huh? I look very little compared, what? I live in the United States of America. If the internet goes down, everybody freaks out. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Tribulation, Netflix is not working. Oh no, persecution. Yes. Twitter feeds are not on. You know, that's how we deal with persecution. Oh Lord, they didn't say hi to me today at church. That's it. Devil's all around us. 
We're all dead. <laughs> but what did we learn? Here's a Christian, brand new Christian. He's to read his Bible. He's to fellowship. He's to pray. He's to take the Lord's Supper. He's to do all these things. And that young Christian says, you know what? I can do it all. Is that all it takes? I can do it. There's another young Christian. He says, hey, you have to read and you have to pray. You have to come to fellowship. You have to take the Lord's table. Man, that sounds a lot harder than, you, than, than it is. I don't know if I have that discipline. I don't know if I can make it. I know me, and I know that I would fail and miserably fail. Who has more hope? The second guy. Why? He has the gift of personal weakness. Or I should say, the recognition of personal weakness. That's better said. He has God's gift of recognition of personal weakness. He knows he won't get anywhere unless there's divine help Amen. that comes to his rescue and is able to do it in the power and strength of the Lord. Here's another Christian. He has terrible temptations in his life. He says, I got this. I'll beat it. I'll kick the habit. Don't worry about it. Here's another Christian with terrible temptations just as much comes to us and says, this is too strong for me, man. I don't know if I can handle it. I don't know if I'm going to make it. Help! I need help. I'm going to be there tomorrow for prayer because I know that I can't do it. Who has the hope? The second one. Why? He knows if he's going to get anywhere in his Christian life, it's going to be the help of God. Amen. Here's another Christian. Lives in a home. The only Christian in that home. His whole family, not Christians. Family members are not believers. Maybe he shares a room with one of his uh, brothers or sisters, and this person begins to challenge, I would say, the, the family. Oh, you guys are all sinners. You guys go to the bars too much. You guys do this. You guys do that. Were there any, any potential of saving those people? The other Christian who is in the home too, Another Christian lives in another home, and he knows, man, this is hard. It's going to be hard to pray with everybody cussing. It's going to be hard to watch any TV in that, room, in that house because everybody else watches shows that aren't even that interested in it. It's going to be really, really hard with all that terrible language in the house. It's going to be so uncomfortable to watch TV. I don't know if I can live in this house. I don't know if I can do it, and I can't even pray. I can't pray, Pastor, because they're all talking about certain things. When it's time to pray, we don't need doesn't even come close to prayer. I'm having a hard time praying. I can't even, I can't even rejoice in that home because it's so difficult. I feel lonely and I feel weak being in that home. Who has the greater hope? Second one, you get the pattern. Why? Yeah. The recognition that there's no way he's going to be able to live or she's going to be living in that home with all the craziness around that person Unless Christ divinely strengthens him or her. How about another one? How about a father who feels he's inadequate to lead his family in prayer? Or to read devotional to his family because he just feels inadequate. I can't do it. I'm so, I don't even know how to do this. I've never been a scholar. I've never been taught anything. I just love the Lord, but I don't know if I can lead my family. What if they have questions? Or if a student in, in his school. I want to start a Bible club, but I don't know how to do it because... They're going to ask me questions, and I don't know any answers. I'm just, young, I'm just a young Christian. I don't know anything. There is hope for the weak Christian. Amen. 
There is hope for the weak Christian, right? There is strength and weakness. This is the point of Paul. How about a children's ministry teacher? Anybody here? Children's ministry teacher? This is tough, isn't it? Oh, teaching children? No big deal. Come on. I can do it. I just show up and I'll just marvel them with my personality, right? I used to teach children's ministry. I know better. Another teacher comes in. This is too hard, Pastor. I want to quit tomorrow. I don't know how am I going to get this done. I have to read it for myself. I don't even know the Bible well enough myself, and you want me to teach it to them? And how to keep their attention? I don't know how to do this. It's too hard. How? Heard my name. Is that the Lord? (laughs) Children's ministry. I don't know if I can do the pastor. You know, I have better hope for that second teacher. Why? It is really hard to teach kids. It is really hard to teach kids. I don't know if you've ever done it. Testify. Testimony time, right? How can we lead kids and bring them to the point of receiving Christ or being prepared to receive Christ when the whole world, media technology, the whole friends, everything they have tells them, you're good just as you are. Don't worry about it. You don't need Christ. You just need yourself. You just need this, this other thing, this other thing. There's no sin. There's no God. There's no creation. Children's ministry is hard. There is power and weakness. The only explanation why a teacher, a student, a father, a mother can ever lead anybody to Christ is when God strengthens them in their weakness. Notice, very precise. God strengthens them in their weakness. I know we all want to be be strong, but that's not the point. The point is not our strength. The point is not what we think we're strong in. The point is the recognition of weaknesses in our lives. And the strength of God's going to come in. God uses ordinary people. God uses ordinary people with daily struggles. Anybody here qualify for that? God uses ordinary people with daily struggles to demonstrate his strength. That is the Christian life. Apart from that, we could do absolutely nothing. If you boast about, I could do this. Don't worry, I've been a Christian for 30 years. Don't worry about this. Just give it to me. I'll do it. Boy, that's a man or woman who's going to fall very quickly. But if a man comes and says, you know what? I have struggles. I don't know if I can make it. I don't know if I can do this. It's through then that God does the work. The Bible explains this. I love this verse, 2 Chronicles 16.9. This is one of my favorite verses. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to show him, uh, looking those who hearts are for him so that he might show strong on their behalf. Isn't that wonderful? God is looking throughout the earth. He looks around throughout the world and he looks to see whose hearts are for him. The word perfect there is complete for him. Who's completely devoted to God. So what's going to do? God is going to show himself strong on their behalf. These are the people that know they're weak, know they're not able, know that if you gave them a task to do, they probably are frightened and run the other way. And it'd be like, that's the guy we need. (laughs) The guy who doesn't believe he could do it. And he's right. He's right. He can't do it. And we must refuse really refuse any experience in the Christian life which promises to eliminate, to eliminate our sense of natural weakness. 
We must eliminate that from our thinking. Meaning that if there are books, if there are teachings that actually do the opposite, that actually encourage you to say, hey, you're strong, you can do it, you can overcome it. It's actually quite the opposite of what God says. God says, yeah, you can't overcome it. Yes, you are weak. Yes, those things are true. And you recognize it. See, the modern world tells us to rise above ourselves and take on the challenge. Self-sufficiency. Is it that word? Big, big word now. Buzzword. Self-sufficiency. But the Bible teaches otherwise. The great need of the hours for men and women today in our church that are weak and admit it that they're weak. That the only hope they have is that heaven opens up and divine help comes from heaven and strengthens you. That's it. That's the need for men and women today. Nothing good is in me, Paul said. There's nothing good in me. Anything good in me, there's none. But God is good. And in God, everything is good. And that's the key. To live outside of our own strengths and our own resources and to say, God, if you don't come through, this is why it's so harder for a rich person to really trust God. Why? Well, a rich person has, let's say, $3 million in the bank and he's got to pay his rent. Does he pray about it? Probably not. Just write the check. <laughs> you got $300 in the bank. Lord, <laughs> unless you come through today, uh, we're not eating and we're not here till next month. Unless you come through. There's grace that it's needed, surpassing grace that it's needed for men and women to repent of that and recognize that they're, they're weak in our own strength. A couple of passages. You love this one. Jesus talked about the, he is the vine and we are the branches. Great song to teach the kids, right? And he says in John 15, 5, without me, you could do nothing. Unless you abide in me, unless you're that strength that comes to the branches from the vine, unless you're being supplied that which the vine supplies, you could do nothing. Without me, you could do absolutely nothing. Do we believe that? I hope so. I think in a lot of the churches, we don't believe that anymore. I think church-wide. Um, I think we think of a lot of things. Without this, we can't do it. <laughs> Without money, we can't do it. Without technology, we couldn't do it. No, Jesus says, without me, you can't do it. That's right. You believe Jesus or you believe Jesus. something else. Yeah. Can't evangelize today without Jesus. Can't pray today without Jesus. Oh, come on, Pastor, we're just going to gather together and pray. We go home, we go eat. I said, well, it's more than that. Here's another one. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, who gives me strength. Yeah. This is not talking about running a you know, 400-meter dash or hitting a home run. Uh, that's not what it's talking about. I can do all things. He's talking about in the conditions that you're in, in the frailty that you have, in the resources that you may lack, God is able to provide all things for you. And you could be content in his provision. And your contentment that he's going to provide, and he's provided all things for you already, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, that you can do all those things. You can be content. You could make it because Christ gives you strength. That's a wonderful verse. And about this one. When we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you know you had no strength when you came to Christ? You had no strength. But you know what? You knew it. 
Oh, that might have been 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago. I don't know when. But that day you knew you had no strength. You had no spiritual strength. You had no strength for yourself. You were bankrupt spiritually and you came to Christ begging him to save you. Lord, if you don't save me, I'm going to hell. Lord, if you don't save me, I'm not going to make it. And Jesus says, I hear your prayer. I'm going to save you. Turn from your sin. Gives you a new heart. Do you have that same longing for him today? Yeah, he saved you. And it's been some time now. But do you think you have strength now? Do you think you grew strength? Or do you think you're without strength? That's the key answer, right? I'm still without strength. I'm still without my own personal strength. Just like that day I came to Christ, it was the same thing. I am the same needy for his strength as I was that day. Did you remember that day? How you were? A broken mess, a bankrupt mess, and he saved you. He put a spirit in you. Don't ever, outli- don't ever outgrow that. Don't ever outlive that and say, oh, that was then. I'm a much more sophisticated Christian now. I read all those books. Uh, those books might have hindered you. I'm not saying it's not good to read. I'm saying... If they teach you something different, you still have need strength. So what is the point? When I looked at Paul, I looked at Paul. Paul's not a martyr. He's not trying to be a martyr. We finish with this. Paul is being someone that we know very well. Who is it? When I saw Paul, I saw Jesus today. When I was reading about Paul, I said, this is Christ who said, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants will fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. But he did he wage warfare? Did Jesus waged warfare on the world and on the devil? Absolutely he did. But he didn't do it through the means of the world and the power of men. Jesus never compared himself with any other man, but allowed God to give him commendation. He never compared himself to anyone. He allowed God to raise him up and he says, this is my son, to commend Jesus. And he raised him up from the dead. That's how Jesus lived. He never said, hey, I'm a better preacher than these Pharisees. He just said, God, into your hands I commit it. And he lived it until the end. Jesus never relied on human appearance. You know, we have no clue how Jesus looked like. And it's by design, by the way. We have no, absolutely no trace of anything physically. He did not look like that. He did not look like any of pink paintings or pictures or anything like that. He didn't look like that. How did he look? Not trying to be blasphemous or anything like that. Ordinary. Ordinary. Jesus looked like an ordinary person. There was nothing of comeliness. There was nothing that we should desire. There was nothing that we can look upon that we would say, man, that's a good looking guy. Hey, he looks like a preacher. No. Jesus looked like an ordinary guy, an ordinary worker with a lot of dust. You were going to work and you just come back and it was a tough day, it was a mess day. You got dust in your hair, dust in your feet, dust everywhere. Jesus, if you walked up to Jesus, you probably would have looked like that. A hard worker. Jesus never exercised any tyranny over anybody. Yet, he had 12 legions of angels at his disposal at any time. But he never called on them. But he actually suffered at the hand of cruel man and died on that cross. So Paul says to us today, as we read Paul and we finish here, use your eyes, Christian. Use your ears, Christian. Can you see Christ in Paul? 
Can you see Christ in him? That's the best defense against anything in your life. Whether they criticize you, attack you, persecute you, whatever it may be. Can you see Christ in Paul? I could today, by the way. I did. I was reading about Paul. I'm like, he lived, he lived like Christ. He lived the Christian life. And of course, the challenge, of course, is, am I? Am I? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you bring us to the reality of ourselves and the true sense of our own inadequacy, our own weakness. In that weakness, Lord, you show yourself strong. Lord, you are looking for men and women who know that they have that sense of weakness. They have the sense of inadequacy and incapacities. And that's whom you use. You don't use the boastful, the proud, the arrogant, the man who's filled with himself. For that to you, Lord, is abhorrent. You look for the men and women who are ordinary, who have struggles in their lives, who know that their weaknesses are far, far more than anyone could imagine. But you know them all together. And so, Lord, I pray you find us in this place with a sense of weakness. I pray you find us with the inadequacy in and of ourselves so that we can cry out to you and say, Lord, help me. Have mercy on me. Deliver me from these trials. Deliver me from these temptations. Deliver me from these tasks that I'm called to do, but I'm unable to do it in my own strength. But with you, I can do it. But unless you do it through me, Lord, I, it won't be done. Please, Lord, allow this body and the body of believers all around the world to call on the name of the Lord for strength. For those who know that they are not able to do what you are able to do in them. So we praise you and we thank you for what you will do in us. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of knowing that we're weak. Because when we're weak, you are strong. Amen. And Lord, and that's all we want people to see is that you are strong. That you are the Almighty. That you are able to do above all that we can ask or think according to the glorious power that you have given us, Lord. We just want people to see that you are the Almighty. Oh, Jesus, we just want people to know that you can do all things. And so, Lord, if that means that we are weak, then, Lord, that's fine with us. If people think we're fools, that's fine with us. Because you are our wisdom and you are our strength. So we praise you today. And we lift you up in the middle of the congregation, in the midst of the congregation. We praise you and acknowledge, Lord, that when we are weak, you are strong. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.